This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people. And today my guest is a cartoonist. His name is Carlo Quispe. He is based in Brooklyn, but he's originally from Peru. He also spent some time in Spain when he was growing up. Uh, he is going to be taking part in the New York Queer Zine Fair on October 7th. Uh, and so we wanted to talk about that and all his other work. He's the founder of Uranus Comics. He's also done all this other cool work. You can learn about it on his website, carloquispe.com. I was first exposed to Carlo through the documentary Dirty Sexy Comics by Robert Chandler, who was a previous guest on the show. And there was something about Carlo and the way he spoke about his work that I really resonated with. And I had this dream of turning Misadventures in the 213, my novel, into a graphic novelette of the pilot that I wrote that never got made of the of the show and maybe doing an anniversary edition of the book. I really kind of want to make that happen somehow if I could pull it together. And so Carlo was an artist that I thought might be a good fit for that. We talked a little about that. Um, hopefully someday it can happen. So when I saw he was going to be part of this New York Queer Zine Fair on October 7th, I thought maybe we can do an interview and we made it happen. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Selena, the singer. No, it's not. It's not. I don't have any sponsors. I just do it myself. But I want to get a plug in about Selena because I wrote a three episode series for Even the Rich all about Selena. It was, it's my most recent Even the Rich um, series. And it just dropped in September. And if you want to learn all about her life and go on that journey, check it out. The podcast is Even the Rich. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. I also want to remind you that if you like this podcast, there are two ways you can support it. You can go to DennisAnyone.net and leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. You can also uh, become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the DNR banner. And for a monthly subscription, you get my show early and you get all these other great shows. So learn about that at dnrstudios.com. Enough of the plugs. Here is the interview with Carlo Quispe. Joining me now from Brooklyn, New York, it's Carlo Quispe. He's a cartoonist and a really talented one at that. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone listening. So the first time I saw you was in a documentary by Robert Chandler called Dirty Sexy Comics. And you really jumped out at me in that documentary. I just thought you were very thoughtful and soulful, and I liked the way you talked about your work. Um, I guess my very first question is this. When did you know you could draw? When did you know you could do it? I guess I've always had this talent, I guess, um, when I was... Um, uh, I'm originally from Peru, right. and before coming to the U.S., my family lived in Madrid in Spain for a while. And I remember, you know, the kind of like art art activities that I would get to do in the weekends. And then once I came to the U.S., um, we had a great art school, like a great art program in, in my middle, middle and uh, high school. Right. We also... Um, found like artistic opportunities to um, compete in, like if there was any kind of art contest, my parents wanted me to enter every one of them. Wow. And actually what led me to uh, come to the U.S., like my, I mean, like I said, my family lived in Spain for a while, but then we went back to Peru and then we came to the U.S., um, during, um, like a political crisis that was happening in the nineties, early nineties in Peru. Uh, that's right. But before coming here, my mother entered me in a contest, like an, um, Ibero American art contest that was organized by Spain. 
to celebrate their 500, you know, quote unquote, discovery of America. And what they <laughs> wanted was to have Latin American kids draw the influence of Spain in their country, right? Right. And so my mother actually drew a lot of the drawings under my name, right? So she <laughs> did like, wow. You know, the, she did like the, the, so I guess like she, I would credit her for being my biggest artistic influence and also my biggest supporter. Yeah. Um, so, but so anyway, she, you know, cheated in this contest, <laughs> right? And like drew a bunch of stuff under my name. Right. Like she, she drew like, Beautiful drawings of like the Pinta, the uh, Nina and the Santa Maria. Of course. Right. And uh, did other, you know, drawings of like the uh, colonial architecture in Lima, you know, kind of like the touristy area in Lima, things right. like that. And what I did was like very simple, kind of like sketchy drawing of like people, you know, like happy faces, right? Uh, in a, but what I was drawing was actually a religious procession right. that happens in October in my, in Peru. Everybody dresses in purple. They parade around a mural of Christ. And it's like a really kind of wacky procession that happens in October. So anyway, I drew this drawing and it ended up winning the contest. Wow. Okay, this is back in like, um, 89. And, you know, there were, it was like before the actual 500 anniversary. Uh, of the discovery of America. So they had like the kids artwork. There were two other kids from other countries that won and like, we all won the same prize. And then we got to go, uh, I, I got to go back to Spain in the town of Huelva, which is where course Christopher Columbus took off from. Right. right. And now they have a special arts, like children arts museum. That's only of kids from Latin America where um these kinds of like you know that's where my drawing is it's still there right? and so yeah, yeah and you so, could go and see it today you could see that drawing amazing after that is when my family came here the way that i was able to like learn english you know like uh conversational english like right. colloquial english is by reading uh comic comic books and I was obsessed at the time with uh, Spider-Man, X-Men, Fantastic Four. But also I loved comic strips. So right. I loved Charlie Brown and uh, Garfield, uh, Rainbow Bride or uh, right. Care Bears. Uh, so, um, yeah, I was obsessed with all of that po American pop culture already. Right. And so when I came to the U.S., um, it was like at the height of like the turtle mania. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, I got to visit stores like Toys R Us for the first time where it was like, you know, up to the ceiling, you know, right. full of toys. I had never been to such a place. Every Everything that I had been watching on TV, you know, like the Wonder Years and stuff, uh, like I was suddenly living uh, in that kind of American suburban reality. Back to my drawing, like that. that's like how when I went to school, that's how I was able to like make friends is by showing off my drawing talent or whatever, like get attention that way. Um, I would just like draw people or draw things for people just basically to make friends and have people like me. Yeah. Well, it worked. How old were you when <laughs> you came to the United States? How old would you have been? 13. When I came here, they like skipped me a grade. Oh, wow. So I ended up, I ended up graduating at 16 and then going to, I went to the School of Visual Arts in 96 
at 17. And uh, when I was in uh, the School of Visual Arts, I was basically the only out queer person right. that I knew. It was very, still very male dominated and it was totally hetero. The final year that I was there, I finally got to study under um, Keith Meyerson, who mm-hmm. is um, an out gay artist, and also Tom Woodruff, who is also a gay uh, illustrator. I had already been like mentored by uh, artists from like older generations. Um, right. Uh, like Joe Orlando, he was one of the artists for EC Comics, like uh, Tales from the Crypt. I was also mentored by Carmine Infantino, who like recreated The Flash and brought back like the entire like superhero genre. And he was really hard on me because I wanted to do more like comic strip, autobiographical stuff. Because I had a comic book back in the day that was called Everything is Terrible Comic. Right. Um, and so he's like, I'm not sure how, you know, how this will sell. And so the next day I brought it back and instead of calling it the everything is terrible comic, I called it the everything's okay comic <laughs> as a, like an ironic right. title. And he's yeah. like much better. Yeah. Um, like before I graduated in 2000, like I started to like send my work out to different like underground publications. Right. Um, and there was a newspaper in Brooklyn called the green line. And that's the first time that I got um, the Everything's Okay comic actually out there as a comic strip, right? Right on. And it was kind, and it was kind of like discussing topics um, that were, hap- you know, that were like relevant to people uh, in Brooklyn at the time, right? Um, like especially like gentrification. Your work is very provocative in terms of political and 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 sexuality and stuff like that. And you talk about being the only one out at a certain points in different parts of your life. Where does, where does the courage to be that person come from? I think it was like, you know, mixed of like circumstance because like I never was brave. You know, I've been raised in a military family, you know, that's very Catholic. My father was very strict and, you know, even physically abusive. And so I've, I've never felt brave. You know, I've always felt subjected, you know, to you know, forces beyond me. Right. There's always been underground queer art. And so I think that I was, you know, just, I just knew that there was like adult work, right? Like even when I was a kid, I would look at, you know, publications that were not allowed. I was really not supposed to have seen, you know, like publications that were for adults only. Right. That had, that had cartoons. You know, I knew Playboy had cartoons. Right. Right. Like, I knew that there was like adult comic stuff, you know? And so I, when I was in high school, I remember going to a used bookstore and finding Howard Cruz's uh, comics, um, the first edition uh, collection of Wendell. Wendell was his, his comic strip for The Advocate right. um, back in the 80s. I had never seen like the depiction of like a gay person who had like a relationship and like a sex sex life right and like family life all together in one you know in one story my mind was blown you know i was like you know 15 or 14 and and immediately matured right um when i saw you know uh, the contents of wendell and my mother actually found that comic Oh wow! Yeah, I, I had like I hid it under my my mattress, and she found it Ugh. and threw it out. Right? Oh, and devastating! I, when I finally met Howard, right, this was like the way that I was like, 
uh, I, th- this is the way that I introduced myself to him. Like I basically told him, um, I had, you know, an early edition of your comic, you know, yeah. of your collected, the first collection. And my mother threw it out because she's very religious. Did you talk to your mother about that after she threw it out? Did you guys have a conversation or was well, it just never talked is, about? This is, I never brought it up to her really until, um, we had a situation where like she found out that I was gay. Like right. this is this is what I was getting at. Like okay. I am not like a brave out person. Right. I was basically like found out and like um you know, I told my mother I was bisexual. You know, even though like all the <laughs> my diary that she you know, so, so she read my diary, Oof. which was an illustrated diary, right? Oof. Fully illustrated gay sex diary. Oh, that's and amazing. So, First of all, that's amazing. So she, <laughs> that's off to that. Well, well, I was like you don't want to forget about this stuff. You right. Know? Yeah. And so she read it. She should oh, not have read it. This no. is totally her fault. Right? Yes. It's her fault. And, um, I had a girlfriend at the time, um, wow. in high school and, um, you know, so I told her I'm bisexual. I have a girlfriend. Um, it's, it was really strange though, because, um, I didn't want to tell her anything about my private life. Even, right. even, even, I didn't even want to tell her that I had a girlfriend because I, I thought maybe she would think I was making it up to, to, to like even out this gay porn that she found. Right. Um, but it was true at the time. I, I did have a girlfriend who I told I was bi. Right. And so at the time, you know, I mean, maybe still I'm bi, you know, it's, I mean, I'm more, definitely more gay now. Um, I stopped having girlfriends in college and so. Um, yeah, like I was found out and like, I, I never really wanted to like come out. I right. never thought there was like really anybody's business, especially my parents. I don't want to know about their life. Right. Um, I'm not going to tell them about my life. Like I couldn't wait to like move out and really like never talk to them again. Right. Like I just wanted to have like my own independent life. Right. Um, away from these like conservative religious people. And, um, also like when I got my first queer comics published, those were comics that I made private that right. I never meant to publish. You have an event coming up. We should talk about it. The yeah. New York Queer Zine Fair on October 7th. So what exactly is that? The Queer Zine Fair, it's always been like fascinating to me, the range of artists that they have there. Um, and you know, when you talk about zines, you're also talking about art books and comics and like merch, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's so you're going to have a table there with your, with your work on it and people can come and see you and buy stuff yeah. and, and, uh, right on. That sounds cool. Yeah. And this is the first time that we're going to have a table, um, because I've always been like a guest or had, have done a workshop for right. the queers in there. But this is the first time that I got, um, you know, there's like an application process. And so I really wanted to have our own table this time because yes. we, you know, have, um, Uranus Comics number three to put out there. And also I have, um, these little miniatures that I've been making called, um, the creatures from Uranus. Right. And they are these like lumpy, um, weird, um, uh, miniatures. Like I these saw figurines. them on your Instagram. They're like little figures, right? They're like, yeah. Yeah. And so they're like red and 
shiny. Like they have like a glazing that has like crystals in the glaze. Cool. And so you can actually see the rainbow in there, um, in, in that, in that crystal in the glaze. Nice. And so they're, you know, they are kind of inspired by like what it, what the, what the, um, tissue looks like inside of the anal canal. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> okay. So, you know, like imagine if somebody pulled you inside out, yeah. right? What would it look like? And so this is what, you know, what these creatures look like. But also they have like jewels and diamonds encrusted in their skin, right? Right. I think <laughs> so, that says a message. That's a metaphor for the preciousness of... The anal it's some kind of metaphor. It's some kind of metaphor. All right, I so mean, are you going to be selling I, those? Are you going to be selling them at your table? Yeah, yeah. Right so on. it's kind of like what inspired uh, Uranus number three because um, the creatures, um, they just look like, you know, these like tiny aliens, but they're also like pink and shiny and like they have like a rainbow in their glitter. And so I kind of wanted to make it be not just about being queer, but also being like an outsider and being like an, an alienated. There's like a, this, you know, huge panic about queer visibility that it's going to like turn your kids gay. My own history with my family, you know, I, it took a long time for my parents to come around yeah, because they realized that like, no matter what they did to me, like negative things, I was not going to, you know, turn straight. You know, I mean, we would have fights about me, you know, they wanted me to go to church and I wouldn't want to go, you know, and, and so I would end up staying home and my mom would go to church crying. You know, eventually they stopped asking me to go to church. And, um, you know, when they wanted me to, you know, be straight or go to a therapist or whatever for that, you know, I, I told them that I didn't want to talk to them anymore, you know? And so they eventually came around, you know, because they realized that I was not going to change and they were the ones who were going to have to change, right? you know? And so my mother ended up going uh, back to school for her master's in social services Interesting. and like finally had, she finally was like um, exposed to um, LGBTQ history. Right. And, uh, when she took her civil rights class, then she first, you know, had her first, uh, trans, uh, friend through that class. Interesting. Right? And, and suddenly her attitude towards me fully changed. And when my father became a diabetic, he had to stop drinking. And when he had to stop drinking, he, his personality totally changed wow. also. Wow. And he realized he had been abusive. And he finally like asked, you know, me, my sister, you know, for forgiveness. And this all happened like in the last year, by the way. That's incredible that your parents had these evolutions. And I'm so grateful, you know, because I don't feel as alone or like disenfranchised, you know, like I did all my life, you know. When they Um, came, when they came back to you, were they able to say the things like to, to, what were those conversations like? Were they articulate about it or was it just more of an unspoken thing? Well, they just, you know, understood me better. Yeah. You know, so like, the, you know, suddenly things that they had been confused about or just they felt, you know, was not part of, they were just, you know, they didn't have a point of reference. They finally did. Right. right? They got and, it. Yeah. And also, I guess I've been doing like um, work 
about my community. Right. And, um, my comics are, you know, autobiographical, but they also are about, you know, um, other, other queer people's lives and, um, how they've, how they've managed to survive, um, essentially. And so, you know, when they, when they read that work, they kind of now, now they understand me better. And so they, and they'll read your work. They'll look at it. They're, they're open. Yeah. I feel like they're the most, they're still super supportive. You know, I mean, my mother's always been, both of them have always been supportive, but now they really kind of get what I'm trying to do. That's incredible. In terms of my work. But also it's been, you know, important, you know, to be part of, you know, the documentary you mentioned in the beginning. Um, I'm really grateful that I was a part of that. And there was another documentary that came out recently called The Rise of Queer, Queer Comics. Yeah. Uh, called No Straight Lines. And it's finally available on PBS and uh, streaming. One of the uh, things that you said in Dirty Sexy Comics that jumped out at me, the way you spoke about your work and other people's work, I just thought was really thoughtful and deep. But you talked about reading other artists' comics and feeling like almost like you had slept with them by having experienced their work. Like there was an erotic connection. I probably said that, yeah. Yeah, no, but I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was kind of cool. I think comics are in a way like the closest we have to like telepathy. Interesting. You know, because you are going into the memory of that of that artist, the creator, right? Right. And um, it's as close as we're going to get to uh, being inside someone's head. It's a, you know, there's an intimacy have, there. That's kind of intimacy. Yeah. yeah, that's unique to this form. That's really interesting. You talk so affectionately about all the mentors and the artists that have inspired you. Do you ever hear from people that have been moved by your art? I did a comic called Paco uh, for an organization here called Visual Aids, and they had um, an exhibit at uh, the gallery PS122 that was about like 40 years of queer comics about HIV and AIDS. Right. My comic was about this Latin guy who did not know his status. Right. Right. And so through conversations with his friends, he, you know, eventually gets tested and gets his uh, result. And, and, you know, he's negative, but he has to keep getting tested. Right. Um, that's like the happy ending of that comic. Right. And so, yeah. So that's the comic that has had the most reach. And that, like, people have gotten back to me about, uh, you know, in a positive way. Is there anything that you can't draw? Like, I think I was it was one of the one of the artists I interviewed was like, I hate drawing hands. I can't draw hands. Like, they have this weird thing about it. Do you have a thing like that where you're like, oh, you know what? I love drawing hands. Um, Interesting. But you know, it's easier when you're drawing from life. You yeah. Know? Then it's easier. Uh, if you have to like invent them, then of course it's going to be really difficult. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's easy if you're like looking at some hands. Right. Um, and then it's not so bad, but sometimes I have trouble with like, okay, so there's a way that you can get like perfect, perfect perspective in a comic, uh-huh. right? Like when you're drawing buildings or a city, right? Like there's a, there's a technique, right? To achieve like perfect uh, mathematical perspective, right? Right. Sometimes I skip that step and like <laughs> eyeball, sometimes I eyeball right. the perspective and sometimes it can come out kind of strange. Yeah. And I have to like do it over and end up having to actually measure things and right. do it the proper way. Right. Eventually. That's funny. You're so, like, I don't need to do that. I'm going to skip that part. And then you're like, mm, maybe I do need it. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, the other thing that jumped out at me on your website, you made a mural in your old neighborhood and it was just because you were walking by and you were like, this wall could use a mural. And so you made it happen. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. That was really fun. And also that's like how I, I was actually able to get some gigs, um, some work because I, I put my, my uh, email on the bottom of the mural. Smart. And local organizations immediately contacted me to do workshops for them. Cool. Okay? This mural was in Washington Heights. Yeah. And what I wanted to do was, you know, this was also in 2016 when the enemy became the nominee for the Republican Party. Right. He was like talking a lot of trash about uh, Mexicans and, you know, shithole countries, bad et cetera. Hom- bad hombres, that and whole thing. Bad hombres. Yeah. And so I really wanted to, you know, create something that was like a counter narrative. Yeah. You know, something to like alleviate this like toxic rhetoric, right? And right. so the mural that I did for my neighborhood was uh, drawings of animals that were then written, like the titles of the animals were written in different languages of the um, neighbors that live in the area. Right. Right. And so suddenly you had this like multicultural, you know, celebration of the neighborhood. Right. Right. And then um, somebody went into the mural and wrote down, um, build that wall, DJT. Wow. But then it was like talking in a way to see somebody had to face the mural. Yes. Sometimes I wish, you know, I could make work that was less serious, more fun or whatever. But I also cannot ignore the changes that are happening I don't know, like almost like the end of democracy. Yeah. You know, um, that's actually what, uh, Uranus number three is all about. It's really about like how we're surviving these changes to our economic system, to our political system, how we're going to make it. You yeah. know, how are we going to survive this like disaster, uh, scenario in which we're in? And ultimately it's about, giving people hope about surviving. You picked a few questions from the observation deck, so we're going to just go through these really fast. What was your favorite toy as a kid? I don't know if you would really call it a toy, but I always wanted a Mickey Mouse watch. Okay. With like Mickey Mouse, with like the hands of Mickey Mouse. of course. You know, telling the time. Yeah. And so ever since I was a kid, I would dream about having this watch because I, I think I had a clock that had Mickey, right. but I really wanted a watch. And so this is something that I'm still obsessed with. <laughs> and so I know that like, if you get an iPhone watch, like an iWatch or whatever, you can put Mickey in it, but it's not, it's not the same. No. You know, it's, it's like digital. Yes. Um, it's like an NFT or something. So right. you need the real thing. I want the real thing and eventually I'll get it. Okay. You know, eBay is there. Yeah. Listeners, yeah. if you feel like uh, get it, making a dream come true, that's cool. Well, I hope you do get it. Um, uh, someday. Here's another question you picked. What's your best random celebrity sighting? My favorite encounter was with Elizabeth Berkeley. Oh, no, me Malone. Uh, Showgirls. Of no, course. Malone, yeah. I've interviewed her. Also, yeah. Oh, my God. You, oh my God, that's so cool. I interviewed her for the cover of Detour for Showgirls before it came out. Uh, she was wonderful. I love her and I feel for her because I feel like she was sort of the scapegoat for that movie, but, um, I adore her. I adore, I adore her too. I feel like she 
made me feel like less afraid of my sexuality. Interesting. And um, especially when it comes to like your career, like in terms of like your sexuality in like in a work situation. Right. I don't know. That movie is intense. You yeah. know, a lot of stuff happens in that movie. And, um, you know, and I had only seen her as, you know, that character from Saved by the yeah, Bell. Yeah, Jesse from Saved by the Bell. Jesse Spano. Yeah. And so I always loved her because she was with Slater, right. who's Latin. Yeah. Okay. And hot. And I, and she reminded me so much of my girlfriend at the time, I guess. Yes. And like putting this together now. And they both had curly hair, um, both into Latin guys. Right. And, um, so when I saw Elizabeth Berkeley, she was actually shooting the real blonde. Yeah. Um, right after she had done the first wife's club. Yep. Right. So I was with, a, I was in, a, I was in a car with my SVA art students. You know, we were all like driving around, uh, Manhattan. And I said, like, stop the car, stop the car. Elizabeth Berkeley is right there. <laughs> and all the guys, you know, that I were in the car were like immediately, you know, hot for her. Right. We had all seen showgirls. You know, right. I, I actually made my early, elderly aunt take me to showgirls because I wasn't old enough. Amazing. And she was so like <laughs> upset that I made her go. That's amazing that she did it. She needs to, to get a medal. Yes. I had to see it. You had to. Um, but so, so I ran into Elizabeth Berkeley and I told her, you know, how much I loved her and everything she had done. And I had just seen her on Letterman or something. And, um, I remember as I was walking away, she'd said how cute I was. Oh. So I'll never forget that. Yay. Let's give she, it up for her. Like, she's the queen. She's the queen. I love her. Yeah. I'm, I love that story. That's amazing. I love that you stopped the car. I saw Elizabeth Berkeley. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> So you're going to be at the New York uh, Queer Zine Fair on October 7th. People can also learn about you through your website. That's right. Uh, it's my name, uh, com. This is my last question. Starting out, you, you, you said that drawing helped you make friends and it sort of opened yeah. up your world a bit. Why do you do it now? Why do you keep doing it? Once your work is out there, I'm like definitely addicted to that feeling. Right. Um, I get, yeah, I guess it's like the most fun for me. I mean, it's also fun to have, you know, like your work turn into a cartoon. For example, I, I did a strip called Harry Tales right. about a gay werewolf that eventually was turned into a, a short animated cartoon. Cool. You know, and that kind of like brought me back to my origins as a, as a commercial artist, you know, in animation. I was also able to do it like on my own terms without censorship. I just want to continue to be part of this community. And also, I guess I want to like help complete the picture, you know, cause we are here like to integrate the comics, uh, trade, right. you know, like the comics business. We just need more of everything out there. Well, I think what you do is really cool. I think people should come and see you at the, New York Queer Zine Fair on October 7th and check out your website. There's lots of cool stuff on there. And it's been a pleasure Thanks to talk so to much. you, Carlo. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this talk. Have All a right. good day. Take care, Dan. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Carlo Quispe. Check him out at the New York Queer Zine Fair on October 7th and learn more at carloquispe.com. All right, so this happened. The writer's strike came to an end. Uh, it's kind of amazing. I am a member of the WGA, um, I haven't had a lot of WGA jobs. 
Um, I did have enough jobs to get me into the guild, and I've had an interesting history with it. I went on strike in 2013 as one of the writers on Fashion Police. It was just our show that went on strike. Um, I've talked about that before on this podcast. It was probably the thing that happened in my life that had the biggest impact on my life and who I am. I'd be a different person today if that didn't happen. But um, the guild went on strike again recently, but the whole guild um, over 150 days ago, something like that. Um, It wasn't just one show this time. It was the whole guild. And I haven't worked on a guild show in a very long time, but I supported it. I went to uh, Picket, which I talked about before. And the thing I want to mention about the strike, the thing that really moved me about the resolution, apart from the fact that it seemed like the the deal is really great for the writers and I'm really happy to hear that is Drew Carey some of you may know this when it started he announced that he was going to pay for writers meals at two diners in LA Bob's Big Boy and Swingers Diner and so if you showed your card uh, Drew would pick up the tab for your meal and I, I took advantage of it after the mismatch game one night uh, we went there and I had my guild card and and I and I showed it, and and my meal was paid for, and it was like the, the the server was like, yeah, that's it, just show me your card, and like there were no loopholes, there was no catch, that was just it, and I don't know, I think in this world sometimes you feel like there's always a catch, that like nothing can just be like, no, that's that's I got you, like you never just catch a break like that the feeling of being told like no it's taken care of and you're like wait you know i don't have to do any like it was just like the, i'll never forget how that felt and i was reading on twitter you know drew carey basically said the strike's over you have till midnight to go to bob's big boy if you want to celebrate or whatever um and then there were all these comments of people thanking drew carey for that generosity i mean i read one article where it was you know probably six hundred thousand dollars like hundreds of thousands of dollars of meals that he paid for and people in twitter would say hey i you know this you know i was really broke but i was able to take my daughter to bob's big boy for her birthday and we celebrated and like just what it meant to people to have that um place to go and to be taken care of and as i said like that moment when they said oh it's covered like the way it felt i'll never forget that it was beautiful so a lot of goodwill toward drew carey it's kind of amazing the way he stepped up and what he meant to people day-to-day individually uh, during that strike. And so, yeah, so it's good news for the writers. And uh, I was happy to see it resolved. And now they just got to take care of the actors. That's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. And we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.